I'm Mike Small and welcome to Scottonomics. Um, our first episode caused a little bit of controversy when we were talking about sovereignty and specifically I brought up the aspect of food sovereignty where I asserted from figures that I had from Business for Scotland that Scotland would be food sovereign. Um, we have apparently 60% of the UK's total sea area um, 20% of the EU's fish from, come from Scottish waters, or they did. And then Scotland possesses 30% of the UK's herd of breeding cattle and 20% of the UK's breeding sheep flock. So why is Scotland not food sovereign? So Scotland could be food sovereign. It has the resources to be food sovereign. So that's certainly clear. Um, but there are certain obstacles to that happening. Uh, uh, some of them are cultural, some of them are political, some of them are about power. So the first and most obvious one is, is the concentration of land ownership in Scotland is so extreme, as we know, and that, that, that land ownership then distorts the use of land towards game, salmon, deer, grouse, as we know, which is highly inefficient but highly profitable for landed estates. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is that culturally... Scotland does not have a good relationship with its own food. It doesn't have a history of appreciating its own food culture, cultivating its own food culture, and eating its own food. Uh, so those are two major obstacles, but there's certainly no, no reason whatsoever why we wouldn't be able to be food sovereign, i.e. have access to the, the food resources to feed ourselves. But the concept of food sovereignty that's normally understood is a little bit more complex than just that. Okay, so in your opinion, how could we improve matters? I think we have to get over a sort of cultural cringe that's pretty deep about our own food. Uh, when I ran the Fife Diet Project uh, some years ago, I remember teaching, uh, explaining at a school uh, talk that what we were gonna do was feed only from, uh, eat only food from the region of Fife for a year and what did the class think was going to happen? And a little boy at the back put up his hand and said, I think you're all going to die. And uh, <laughs> the, 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 the reason he said that was because we've got an understanding of what fruit is and what really now when, you, when people understand fruit, they mean mangoes and bananas and exotic fruit that we certainly can't produce here. But at the same time, we're the largest producer of soft fruits in Europe. We produce fantastic raspberries and strawberries and, and all of this. So understanding what fruit is would be a start and, and eating our own fruit. We also famously don't eat our own seafood. And uh, that is an extraordinary output to, to Europe, which has been very much undermined by Brexit. So there's some things that we need to culturally relearn about appreciating our own food culture. Do you think there needs to be more of a connect between people in Scotland and the farming community as well. I feel that to a certain extent they're separated by the big food suppliers, the big supermarkets. Do you think there needs to be more connection? Definitely. And we've known for a number of years that um, farmers are, are, are growing older and we don't really have a throughput of young farmers coming on stream. And, you know, farming isn't like another industry where you can just make it up. You know, this comes from traditions and families over years accumulating knowledge. So the other thing I think we uh, really need to do is, is repair broken knowledge and skills about food, about, about growing and cooking and eating it. 
Yeah, I have a friend who's a smallholder and he asserts that actually farms need to be, a lot of farming needs to become smaller and more diverse and using, for example, permaculture principles much more. Would you be in agreement with that, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the principles of food sovereignty as normally understood is that we, we build and repair knowledge and skills. We work with nature and we relocalize our food systems into regional entities that are far more diverse rather than monocrops. So the whole industrial system is based on huge farms selling monocrops into industrial supermarket chains. And so the whole structure then distorts land use. And if you begin to change that, you begin to break that up, create a much more environmentally friendly and climate viable farming system, break up the carbon chain of that trucking food up and down the country, and, and you begin to transform things. But that takes cultural shift, it takes strategy, and it takes po political will and drive. And much of this debate around land and food and, and supermarket food systems is locked into people who greatly benefit from the current system, even if we don't. Yeah, absolutely. But I think to a certain extent, people are being forced to think about change now as well, because obviously uh, for people who are watching the news just now, they'll see that there is a problem with food transport right now. Um, lack of drivers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the president of the Road Haulage um, Association said that the, the British food chain is about to collapse, fall over, and we can we can see that. Um, but I think it's a system that was already broken, breaking down further because of the Brexit fiasco. But the opportunity we've got, you know, the, the IPCC climate report w was should have been such a wake-up call that we have to change everything. And one of the things that's a massive input into our carbon output is the current food chain and uh, the chill chain, which means that if a, a lamb is exported from New Zealand, they want to keep sell it as fresh, not frozen. So it's kept at uh, minus one degrees from New Zealand to Scotland, whether that's by ship or by flight. And it might be 90 days since it's slaughtered, but it's sold as fresh. If you think about that, about all the chilled foods that's in a globalised food system, that's just a massive carbon output before you take on board the shipping, the flights, the trucking uh, carbon outputs. So we have to change the way we do food. It's simply not viable to produce this amount of food around the world as we currently are. The Scottish Government have just um, released a um, paper which said, suggests that they want to support the food and drink industry uh, to double in size and move to a 30 billion industry by 2030. Um, do you think this is the type of thing that responsible governments should be doing with, with concerns so high around um, climate? Well, I'd really like to see that and see what the carbon... Uh, calculations are built into that. I mean, the problem we have it, is that the, the Scottish government at one point talks about um, uh, local economies and circular economies, and in some senses funds uh, local food projects, but its main overwhelming drivers for export growth. And I'd imagine that that's what they're talking about when they talk about that massive expansion. It's basically selling salmon to China, selling whiskey to US and India, and that has massive carbon impacts. It's completely unsustainable. And as we know, the, the salmon industry is riddled with problems 
from the pollution of sea lochs to the undermining of wild salmon and on and on and and the animal uh, rights issues involved in that as well yeah it's our number one export it's the thing that we champion it's almost like the symbol of food in scotland our greatest export is something that is highly problematic and polluting and i, I think that's kind of sy symptomatic of, of where we are well, looking ahead to an independent Scotland, the strategy, the current strategy, certainly for the Scottish government, is to be this exporting powerhouse. Is there any way to square that circle with net zero and sustainable Scotland? No, it's completely, it's completely hypocritical. It's not going to work. It's not going to work in any sense. And we need to be much more radical and bold about rethinking how we're doing things. There's a great project in East Ayrshire uh, where they are relocalized uh, the school canteen uh, working with Locavore, a great project from, from Glasgow that, that's a local food project. There are innova innovators all up and down the country. So it's not like we don't have any idea how to do this. We know exactly how to do this. We just need to unleash that, those social entrepreneurs and those farmers and producers that are, you know, are at the, at the forefront of change. So how do you feel about independence and the role of food sovereignty? Because I would certainly argue that it's impossible for Scotland to be food sovereign when it doesn't have any involvement. And, and you know, after speaking to Jim Fairley recently, any involvement at all in the trade deals that are being done by the UK government. Can we really have any kind of sovereignty if we have so little involvement in these huge trade deals that are being done? No, we need sovereignty to get food sovereignty. Um, but we can... Uh... <laughs> We can be making progress, we can be exploring these ideas, we can be creating new institutions and structures that demonstrate how we're going to do it. Um, for example, in Copenhagen, they have a thing called the House of Food. Uh, they've converted their output on all public uh, institutions like schools, hospitals, prisons, anything to organic. They're now something like 80% organic output. They've retrained and skilled up uh, catering staff. Um, they've they've created a kind of holistic strategy for the capital city. You know, we, we could be doing those things like that and and changing our farming practice and building climate into how we do food now, so that when we become independent, we've got the the means and 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 some years under a belt of of practicing that. But and I think that this is true throughout the independence movement. Sometimes we think. Will there be a kind of year zero and everything will start then? And, mm -hmm. and I don't really believe that. I always think it's time now to build the, the building blocks of how we're going to be independent. You mentioned them earlier, um, supermarkets. And I wonder what role you thought they played in uh, food and food sovereignty. And well, we've outsourced our entire food system to about four large companies. And they're not, they work on a just-in-time delivery system, and that's what we see breaking down at the moment. So the food is constantly in transit, constantly being delivered, and never in store, or as little as possible. That's their economic model. And when it works, it works quite well to deliver a wide range of low-quality food to people at an affordable price. But environmentally, it's completely disastrous. It gives you this illusion of vast choice. Um, it it provides uh, low skill, low paid, precarious work to a lot of people. It's not very resilient. It's not built into community. Um, we're not in control of it. Uh, so I think it's a disastrous model. 
I would put an immediate embargo on any further supermarket builds and then begin to reclaim our our, our food system from them. Um, and I would, I mean, I don't know if you remember when there was the horse meat scandal a few years ago, two of the biggest supermarkets put took out huge newspaper adverts basically saying, we don't know how any of this happened. We're selling you horse meat and we don't know how this happened. You know, and, and that was an extraordinary kind of light bulb moment of going, oh, right, you're running the food system and you don't really know where you're getting the meat from and you're selling horse meat into schools. Wow, that's incredible. So, no, I, I also know that there are very high uh, sponsors of political parties uh, at Westminster. If you look at it, the donations from the big supermarket chains are, are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. So they're lobbied uh, right into the heart of power. Um, but I don't think that they can be part of a sustainable food system. For, I, for me personally, I've always felt that I wish there could be more connection between the farming community and the people who care about um, having low-carbon food because not only is low-carbon food um, good for the environment, it's also good for our health. Because obviously yeah. anything, as soon as it's plucked out of the ground or off of a tree, it's losing nutrition right away. You know, and and it, the 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 closer the the closer the provenance of your food is, it's obviously going to be better for you as a person. So it's a yeah. you know, I hate to use this phrase that a win win situation. You but it really is. We really and and I feel that we need more connection with the farming community, people who care about these things, and the farming community. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I mean the dairy the dairy situation is disastrous. Where you're asked to sell a product. At, at, you know, and not be able to make any money from it because it's kept artificially low. But I think it's this is part of the problem of our whole artificial food system. So uh, I remember going into an ASDA, I think it's an ASDA, and in some of the dairy aisles, they've got um, moo sounds that echo out the ground, just to remind you of what a cow sounds like. You know, and I think that we've forgotten what fresh food actually tastes like. So when you eat a, a diet of very highly concentrated synthetic food, uh, highly processed food, you kind of lose the sense of what a fresh piece of fruit or a fresh vegetable actually tastes like. And that level of disconnect gets worse and worse. But you're entirely right about the connection between provenance and carbon, because if, you, if, the, if we'd had proper provenance, then you would have been able to say, oh, that's why we've got horse in our school dinners. <laughs> you know, but the thing becomes so broken down and so industrialized that we can't. Um, so reconnecting people really with their own food culture, their own local food heritage, and then what taste food tastes like is absolutely essential. Yeah. How do you think we can improve that connection between the food producers and the people who care about uh, about this? Well, I think that the, the sign, uh, we did some work in schools in Fife, a few years ago, and, and I'm really pleased to see that that's carrying on in East Ayrshire just now. And I think that's the beginning. You, you create connections between key institutions like schools and local farms, which is an obvious way forward for education, for getting people out of the classroom, for understanding where their food comes from. I think you celebrate your own food culture. I think we're quite bad at being sort of self-denigrating about Scottish food uh, you know, the deep fried Mars bar jokes and stuff like that. Uh, whereas I think we've got some absolutely fabulous produce that's the envy of the world 
here and we should really celebrate that. So you need to take that out of the kind of chefy world, out of master chef and into public institutions and, and everyday dialogue to celebrate that. Um, I, the other thing I wanted to mention as well in this interview, of course, is that you have a book called Scotland's Local Food Revolution. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, here it is. It came out uh, a few years ago. It's still available. Um, it kind of was the summary of the work that we did with the Fife Diet to capture some of that. And basically it argued that we're in a climate crisis and we need to change the way we do food here. And here's some ways that we can do it. But it was also a celebration of um, the fact that in Fife, thousands and thousands of people did that. And I think this idea that this is all too difficult, nobody will really do it, everybody loves the food system as it is, just doesn't bear much scrutiny. And so the book is in part uh, an exploration of, of what people found exciting about that. And it was rediscovering your own food heritage, rediscovering what's available in your own region, and then coming together and eating together. And that kind of sense of conviviality and community that eating food together brings was a really powerful organizing tool. And uh, it's something that uh, I think people in the independence movement should uh, you know, take note of. How do you create those forums that are eating together, sharing food together, not just drinking together, but uh, dancing or, or eating or, or celebration uh, is something that's quite kind of a basic human uh, value. It's something that people really move towards. So um, it sounds crazy, but eating together as an organising tool was one of the key things that we took away from that. When, when we're looking at the economy as a whole, a huge part of that is the land and how we use the land. Have you got any thoughts around that in terms of the food that we grow and how we use the land and how we can line that up with Scotland's new economy? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to confront the reality of landed power in Scotland and the monopoly it has over huge swathes of land. Famously, we know about uh, the impact of uh, grouse farming estates, which are, are kept in a condition that's good for shooting. Uh, we know about vast tracts of land that are held for deer or hunting and shooting. And uh, this is a real distortion of how you could run a productive economy and a local food economy that, had, that was broken down, many, many more people holding land, uh, having security of um, land tenure, um, and then the diversity of what you would grow because we create monocrops all over the place, either vast monocrops of, um, of, of woodland that aren't ecologically viable or monocrops uh, to, to sell into um, the alcohol industry or the monocrop, which is a grouse moor. Um, none of these are functional, forward-focusing, or economically uh, viable models. And breaking up that land could mean that we could have a much more diverse and productive food economy. Yeah, and importantly, much more resilient food economy. And, and as we've been having these conversations across the, the Food Sovereignty Week, we're realising that Brexit and what's been happening around COVID and the shortage of drivers, it's not caused the problem, it's just highlighted the problems that we perhaps didn't see. But we know that Scotland isn't resilient and isn't food sovereign. And I think all of these ideas that you've done and all the work you've done previously are really help us get towards that. Thanks again for coming to Scotonomics. Okay, thanks for having me. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.